Well, have you ever wondered what was in God's mind when he created a rhinoceros? Or an anteater? Or mosquitoes? I, do, I have some questions about what might have been in his mind when he created mosquitoes, right? Have you ever wondered what God was intending for life to be like way back in the Garden of Eden? I mean, think about it. What did God intend to happen? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so picture it that the Spirit of God is hovering, and the voice of God was about to speak into nothing and create something spectacular. Light from darkness, day from night, land from water, earth from sky, plants and vegetables, fruits and produce, stars and sun and moon to give order to chaos, fish and birds that could multiply themselves and populate the skies and seas, living creatures and animals and livestock. And then God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And God the creator and the spirit of God who was hovering nearby and God the son who we later learn was present, they are there together in perfect submission to each other. Perfect, unspoiled relationship with total and complete trust in each other. And imagine the meeting of all three members of the Trinity when God says, let us make mankind in our likeness. As in, Mankind will look like us or be in perfect relationship like us. And then in true fashion that we see throughout Scripture, God tells us what he's going to do, then he does it, and then he reminds us he did what he said he would do. So then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and all the creatures that move along the ground. And so then God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, Male and female, he created them, and then God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. A blessing was pronounced, a mandate was given, work was established, and a job was created. And God looked over all that he had created in the garden and he saw that everything he had made and he declared it was all very good. So Adam got to work tending the garden, but it quickly became apparent there was one thing that was not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. So I will make a helper suitable for him because it would be impossible for man to be made in the image of a God who exists in constant and eternal relationship with the Spirit and the Son, and the man then be left alone. Mankind was made for relationship because we were made in the image of God, and it was the only not good thing in the garden. And so the Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. This was a huge job that Adam was given to subdue the earth, rule over all the animals, and name them all too. 
He's in a literal zoo, and he's the only employee. That's a massive job. There's no one to help him. The task he has been given is too large to manage on his own. A helper is needed. Plus, Adam has been told to fill the earth, to multiply mankind. We have a real problem here. There is no suitable helper for this mandate either. God had a plan, though, and he made the woman. Now notice in the beginning, Adam and Eve were both formed and made by God. They were to help each other. And they were given the same instructions, same mandate, same blessing. Adam and Eve were to be helpmates to each other, to serve each other, because they were made in the image of the Godhead with total and complete submission to one another, but without hierarchy. And certainly Adam and Eve would have different strengths and weaknesses, different abilities and different ways of thinking, because men aren't women and women aren't men. They're different. God clearly states that. And the fact that both male and female are needed to bear children stands as a powerful testimony to the roles God intended for men and women to play in covenant with one another. They are both needed. Indeed, they are both required and testify to the uniqueness of male and female. Both separately and together, the man and the woman serve a purpose in fulfilling the plan of God. There is no other union that is capable of producing life. Now, to be clear, God did not make Eve only for the purpose of bearing children, but it is a fact that the only way the earth could be filled was by the coming together of a man and a woman. God made both male and female and gave them a mandate to fill the earth, and that would happen through marriage. So for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. So we see right here that marriage was established before sin entered the garden. Marriage was established before the founding of nations, before the birth of Israel, before the law of Moses was given, before the Pharisees formed to enforce those laws, before the church was born, before the Western ideals of marriage took hold or the legality of marriage became a thing. Marriage was God's idea from the beginning. Because here's the thing, Adam and Eve, they don't have parents to leave. God isn't telling an Adam and Eve what to do. He's telling us. It's setting a precedent, establishing a pattern that's to be followed. And this verse becomes the foundation on which our understanding of marriage is still built. The husband and wife will become united. It's covenant language that's being used here. And a covenant in Scripture was a binding agreement between God and his people or between two or more people. So in marriage, the man and woman agree to a permanent relationship with each other. And they make that promise before God, and they make that covenant promise to God. This is what makes Christian marriage different. You're promising each other that you'll love each other and remain committed to each other, certainly. But ultimately... You're making a promise to God that you're going to remain committed to this person for a lifetime. So you aren't any longer two. You're one. And therefore, what God has joined together, man can't separate. So by choosing to marry, you are choosing to make a covenant with God and your spouse, and you've been joined together by God. It is not your decision to separate. 
Now, I don't know what God was thinking when he made giraffes, those crazy long necks, or when he thought poison ivy will be a good thing. That's going to be one of my faves, right? But I do know what God had in mind from the very beginning when he created a man and a woman in the image of the Godhead who are forever covenanted together in a relationship that exists in perfect unity and joined the man and woman together to create life and multiply life, which was also a way of bearing the image of their creator who breathed life into them first. Because scripture makes clear that marriage was in God's mind from the very beginning. So it makes sense then that when God chose to send his own son to earth, he chose to do so by placing him in a family with a mother and a father. And one day, years later, Jesus and his disciples are ministering in the region of Judea when some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. Is it lawful, they say, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And the Pharisees are intent on trapping Jesus and catching him out through this well-known debate among the scholars of Jesus' day. The Pharisees, well, they wanted to engage him in an argument they felt confident he could not win. And why were they so confident? Because there was no definitive answer. The debate centered around this verse from Deuteronomy. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, what? To him, because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and it goes on with what he can do. And what they wanted was for Jesus to debate the law. They wanted him to get into the weeds with them on the minutiae of the any and every reason why men could divorce their wives, because women couldn't seek a divorce in that day. Just men could. So why could men divorce their wives? Does any mean any? But Jesus... Well, he takes it as an opportunity to do a segment he should have called Adventures in Missing the Point. <laughs> so Jesus won't, uh, won't uh, engage the argument from Deuteronomy 24. He goes back even further. He goes back to the beginning because he was there and he knows what God had in mind about marriage. So Jesus answered them, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they aren't lo any longer two but one and therefore what God has joined together let no one separate? So Jesus connects the creation of man and woman with the principle of marriage. He connects those two things. They're not directly together in Genesis. One's in chapter one, one's in chapter two. He's connecting those two principles and then says, so as you can see, this was kind of a big deal. It was established by God and made in covenant to God and God is greater than the law. And you can debate the law and you can debate the legality of marriage and you can debate the legality of divorce all day long. But it doesn't negate the fact that God's ways are the ultimate authority and his ways exceed man's ways forever. There we go, yeah. <laughs> Boy, we were about to have all sorts of problems, right? Yeah. Uh, if we don't think that God's ways are above everything else, then okay. Let's, well, let's go back to the beginning ourselves. Okay. So that's when the Pharisees interject. Wait a minute, they say. But Moses said we can. 
The rebuttal to what Jesus just said is basically, well, if God says we can't separate, then why did Moses command, command, they say, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away, huh? Answer us that. Because the Pharisees aren't used to anyone challenging them. They know the law. They don't need anyone telling them about original intent. And we talk about the law all day long. We're pretty good at deciphering it and its meaning. Jesus has now upset the conversation, though, when he says, yeah, I'm familiar with the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what about what God says? And you see, this is still a tactic of the enemy to get us to talk about the Bible without reading the Bible to live by the principles that came from or were derived from the Bible without actually living by the word of God and to use the word of God as a sword to attack others without first allowing it to penetrate down deep into our own hearts, dividing out soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and allowing God's word to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our own hearts first. And Jesus says, guys, Moses doesn't command you get a divorce if you don't like your wife. He just permitted it because your hearts had been hardened against the things God had established early on. And if your hearts weren't hard, well, then this wouldn't even be an issue. And the truth is, if our hearts weren't hard, even the exception Jesus gives wouldn't be an issue. Jesus told them, Moses permitted you to divorce because your wives because your hearts were hard, but it wasn't this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And if we truly lived in relationship with our spouse, like the relationship of the Godhead in whose image we were made, then there wouldn't be abuse. There wouldn't be physical abuse or emotional abuse or verbal abuse, or sexual abuse in marriages. Because we would care for each other above ourselves. We would prefer one another in love. Submission wouldn't be a bad word because it wouldn't be defined by power dynamics, but by humility and love. If we truly lived in the kind of relationship like the Trinity does, then we would be selfless and patient and kind with those closest to us, like our spouse. If we truly remain committed to each other like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, then sin wouldn't ruin marriages through adultery or other sinful behaviors. But sin does have its way right now, and Jesus understands that. And so he finishes his response to the Pharisees by saying, it wasn't this way in the beginning. It wasn't this way in the garden when marriage was conceived in the heart and mind of God. It wasn't this way before sin entered the picture and broke the beautiful relationships God had created. But the law permits divorce because hearts are hardened by sin and marital unfaithfulness occurs. And people can be unfaithful to their vows through abuse, infidelity, and indiscretions. And if that has been your experience, then I have to pause here to let you know that Jesus sees your pain and sees the hurt that you have known and he washes away your shame and is holding you with a heart bursting with love and compassion. And if you were the abuser or the one who was unfaithful, 
there is forgiveness and healing for you as well. And in Christ, there is now no condemnation. So don't look backwards now. Don't let your mind go backwards on what God has already forgiven as I now make this next point from Scripture. What's forgiven by Jesus is done, so don't go backwards. Plant yourself right now and look forward. But so that no one else experiences this in the future, Jesus makes clear that anyone who leaves their spouse for any other reason than marital unfaithfulness has broken the covenant and committed sin. And Jesus makes clear here and in two other places in the New Testament that adultery is sinful behavior. Because marriage as a lifelong covenant was in God's mind in the garden when he created man and woman. But sin, adultery, and divorce were not. So let me sum up the main points here in Matthew 19 so far. Jesus has just affirmed marriage was established by God from the very beginning to be between a man and a woman for the purpose of uniting together for a lifetime. Jesus has recognized that sin has hardened hearts and therefore God allowed the law, uh, uh, through the law, specific reasons for divorce. And number three, Jesus has no problem calling out sin and he sees adultery as sin. And so you can understand much better now why the disciples asked the question that we talked about last week. Because Jesus has just called out everyone. The Pharisees for looking for loopholes and missing the covenant import of marriage. He just called out people who had allowed sin to enter their hearts and turn them against their spouse. And even in Jesus' day, no one likes hearing a sermon that lists specific sins. His hearers were squirming as much as you guys are. And I feel a little like squirming myself, right? I mean, we would much rather hear a sermon that says, Jesus does not want us to sin. What are those sins? Let's not talk about them. That gets awkward. So let's just say sin, right? Let's talk about a lesser sin. Let's talk about a sin that hasn't actually impacted all of our lives. Let's talk about something that we can hear on the news and get behind, but let's not talk about something that really kind of hits home, right? Like, it makes us all kind of squirmy. I mean, I kind of have, yeah, I, this isn't my favorite part of this sermon. I'll just tell you that, right? But it's in God's word. And if we're going to preach God's word, we got to preach the whole thing. And if I'm going to preach Matthew 19, I got to preach all of Matthew 19. And that's where we are. And that's where we've landed. And so after hearing all of that really uncomfortable thing, the disciples say, you know what? If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's probably just better not to marry at all. I think, you know what? We're just going to... Take care of that right here and right now, right? And again this week, I still think that Jesus is shaking his head going, no, guys, no, that is, no, you guys are already married. Come here, come here. And I won't re-preach last week's sermon, so go back and listen to that, because I know the half of you that are here today, you guys weren't here last week for Memorial Day, and the people that were here last week, they're not here today because they left on vacation. So thank you all for switching. I really appreciate that. But this is where Jesus offers that really strange response, because Jesus doesn't say, no, you're wrong, guys. It is better to marry than stay single. And he doesn't say, yeah, you're right. It's better to stay single than to marry. He didn't say either one of those things. But what he does do is unequivocally state that some will choose singleness over marriage for the sake of the gospel and the building of the kingdom of God. But how does that fit with what God said in the very beginning? 
Was marriage the only thing God had in mind for men and women when he created the world? If marriage was created by God at the same time he was creating clouds and strawberries and daffodils, then how can singleness be considered good? Is singleness a lesser plan or a lesser ideal than marriage? Because certainly at times, since Adam and Eve, single people have been made to feel that way. Oh, you're single. Mm -hmm. I will be praying. (laughs) For what? Right? From the day a baby is born, we begin to make plans for them. We make marriage matches back there in the ark part. We're praying for their spouses while they're still in the womb. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. You should. But the message is that marriage is expected and that marriage is the only godly path and that those who do not marry have failed to meet the mark when truly the best we can desire for ourselves and our children is that they grow to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, obediently, and unashamedly. So the question is still there, though. Is singleness lesser or outside of God's plan for men and women? Well, look again at Matthew 19 and verse 9. And you guys, I've been talking so slow that I'm actually about to run out of time. I'll have to speed up. (laughs) In this passage, Jesus asserts his own authority into the matter. John Stott notes that Jesus loved to use a formula that no ancient prophet or modern scribe ever used, that he would speak in his own name and with his own authority. And Jesus had done this before, most notably in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had told the crowd that day, don't be thinking that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. And then six times in that sermon, he would say, you've heard it said, and then reference an Old Testament law, and then say, But I tell you, because Jesus wasn't getting rid of the law, he wasn't saying that it didn't matter, he was actually challenging his listeners to go further than even the law required. So Michael Green said, the law is not the limit of obedience, it is to be seen rather as the springboard for a life of devotion to Jesus and his Father. And Jesus was looking for those who would honor the giver of the law with their obedience, not those who were simply trying to legalistically follow all the rules. So in Matthew 19, 9, Jesus does this again. He says, the law permits you to divorce. That's true. But I tell you, on my own authority, that it's bigger than that. It's not about what you can do and still follow God. It's about what God desires, obedience and faithfulness to the covenant you've made. And the authority that Jesus has is important because it means he has the authority to then announce to his disciples that a life of singleness was also a good and obedient choice because he was there at the beginning and he knew what was in God's mind and he's an equal member of the Godhead, his Father, the Spirit, himself, the Son. And we were made in the image of the Godhead and yet Jesus himself was single And Jesus is the single witness to the good of both marriage and singleness. He came to fulfill all that had been said in the scripture, in the law and by the prophets. And he came calling our attention to go beyond what even the law required. Because Jesus' kingdom was bigger than just the nation of Israel only. And it required more than rule following. And it reimagined what the people of God would look like, act like, and live like. So in Genesis, God blessed man and woman and gave them a mandate to be fruitful and to increase in number. He was building a people and a physical nation. But Jesus, 
he gives a similar mandate too and reimagines the work that we, his people, are to do to build his new kingdom. So he stands before his disciples after he has risen from the grave and announces all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me to now tell you, therefore, I commission you, I'm giving you a mandate to go and to make disciples of all nations. Be fruitful, multiply yourselves, increase the number of disciples because God is now building a spiritual kingdom. Multiply yourselves by teaching them to obey everything that you have been commanded so that they will also go and make more disciples and the work will forever multiply itself. In Genesis, blessing is connected to the man and woman bearing children and God pronounced that blessing on the man and the woman and that blessing continued to the generation after that and the one after that and time moved forward and God called Abraham to be the father of the nation he was building and he promised that through his children all nations would be blessed and blessing was tied to children until Jesus arrived and announced that in him was the fulfillment of all that had been said to Abraham that Jesus was both a descendant of Abraham and the blessing and gift to all the nations of the earth. And so after the resurrection, Jesus took his disciples out to Bethany and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. In Genesis, God states it was not good for man to be alone. And in the garden, marriage was the solution. And Jesus does not contradict this statement in Matthew 19, even as he recognizes that his followers may be asked to give up children or family. Yet the lack of family doesn't equal being alone. Jesus, who was single, lived in constant community. He was born into a family. He was raised by a family. He was surrounded by male and female disciples who followed him. He had close friends like Mary and Martha and Lazarus who let him stay at their home often because we were made for relationship, and Jesus knew this, and he demonstrated it. Marriage, friendship, relationship with God are all ways of being not alone. And Jesus announces as part of his own blessing over the disciples, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In Genesis, the task at hand, taking care of the earth and the animals, it was too big for one man, Adam, to accomplish on his own. And so a helper was given to him. And just like in the garden, the task at hand, taking the good news to all the world, it won't be accomplished by a singular man or woman. It won't be done by only single people or only married people. The whole community Jesus built while on earth will be sent out, and a helper has been given to us as well. Before the disciples were to go, they were commanded to wait for the gift God the Father had promised. The Holy Spirit would be poured out on them. The helper was coming in the form of power for mission and service and godly living. Marriage is a good thing. It's established by God. God desires healthy, strong marriages that reflect the image of the Godhead. But God also desires us to be obedient to him in all things. And that still includes marriage vows. And singleness is also a good thing. We have it on the authority of Jesus that it is good. And Jesus came not to do away with any of this, but to fulfill it and to establish a new kingdom. And in this kingdom, both married and single people participate in its expansion. 
Both married and single people play a role in telling the story of the scripture, but that's next week's sermon. Both married and single are needed to make disciples and to replicate themselves. Both married and single are good and biblical ways of living. One is not lesser or greater. Both married and single are ways to serve and honor God and fulfill his commands. So Genesis describes covenant marriage, but it doesn't require it. The law permitted divorce, but it didn't commend it. And Jesus proposes singleness, but doesn't demand it. And I don't know what God was thinking when he created thistles or pine cones, but I know what he was thinking when he made us. Men and women will bear my image to a world in need. They'll show the world how to live in relationship and community with others through their singleness, their marriages, their friendships, their church community. And they'll go forth and they'll produce life, multiplying themselves with both biological children and spiritual children. For you have heard it said, be fruitful and increase in number. But Jesus says to us today, yes, and also go make disciples. Because there's a purpose for both married and singles in the work of building the kingdom. Will you bow your heads this morning? Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that your word would speak to our hearts. There were some heavy parts in that message today. I'm very aware of that. And I pray, Lord, that you would come, that you would bring healing. pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to marriages. I pray that you would bring healing to hearts that have been wounded. I pray, Lord, that you would come today and minister to those who have felt a call to go into all the world and make disciples and have felt like they couldn't because they weren't married. I pray today, Lord, for those who have desperately wanted a biological child. I pray, God, that today, Lord, you would bring healing and you would open wombs. I've been praying that all week, Lord. Would you bring healing to someone today? Bring healing to someone today. Bring healing to us, Lord, through your word. Let your word convict us, but your word does not condemn us. So let it convict where it needs to convict. Let it instruct where it needs to instruct. And let your word heal. Let your word heal us today. Let your word come and wash over us. That there is healing for us in so many ways. There's healing today from wounds and words that people have said. There's healing today. There's healing. And I thank you for that, Lord. Come, Lord, creator God. Create and recreate anew in us a heart that loves you and that loves others.
Restore us, Lord, in relationship to you.